0: The Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. (laughs) This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM.
1: For this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to Wing Commander retired Chris Miro. But before I start, I just want to share something he told me a little while ago, and I quote him directly. He said, we dropped out of the overcast at about 800 feet. I glanced to my right, and Fergie was nicely tucked into Echelon. I waved him out to combat and looked ahead to get my bearings. Now, it looked like Kedda Peak, disappearing up into the clouds just up to the north and we were rapidly closing the Malaysian coast. I was thinking that we'd been well positioned by our ground control intercept controller so that we could turn to join for a right initial and special visual approach to runway 8 at Butterworth. But something didn't look right. Now, as we crossed the coast, I looked down and thought, this isn't bloody right. All right. Have a listen to Chris in interview and you'll hear the rest of this very challenging situation. It really is well worth listening to. Chris also tells us about his life flying sabres and mirages in the Australian Air Force. His sabre flying consisted of operations in Williamtown, Malaysia and also Thailand on air defence related to the Vietnam War. His Mirage flying included an aerobatic display team to mark the 50th anniversary of the RAAF. Now, in May of 1971, he was posted to Vietnam, attached to the 11th Brigade of the 23rd Infantry Division as a forward air controller. This is a very, very dangerous posting. Chris will tell you that they were later to be more than disappointed with their welcome home to Australia as were all the Vietnam veterans. This is a sad chapter in the history of Australia, welcoming back our Defence Force personnel who were fighting for us. He continued his fighter operations for some years, including becoming a fighter combat instructor, possibly the pinnacle of fighter flying. Well, Wing Commander Chris Miro, welcome to our podcast. How are you? Uh, very well, thanks, Gareth. Listening to the introduction, you've had a, an illustrious career and almost a career that didn't end, uh, that, that come to a abrupt end, which we'll talk about soon.
0: Yeah, I had to get through the early days, and I was I was pretty good after that. Yeah, pretty.
1: <laughs> I I admire your uh, young interests, biggles and hop harrigan, because I had the same interests. In fact, I think I have about 30 of Biggles, the Biggles books, so I'd love to get the complete collection. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, well, unfortunately, I've lost the books, and uh, I don't think you can get copies of my Paragon no. anymore.
1: No, you can't. Yeah. And you know, the Biggles books now, are, if you can get a collection, they're worth a fortune. Okay. They're worth it. Yeah. A- anyway, why did you join the Air Force, apart from the obvious?
0: Well, it was the obvious. I just wanted to fly aeroplanes. Um, the... the I guess the motivation came from my father initially, because he flew when, uh, he, um, when he was younger, um, but he had a, a wooden leg. He um, lost it when he was about 16 or 17 or something, and they wouldn't let him in the Air Force, so uh, he couldn't continue flying there. But he used to fly at uh, Bankstown when it was an all-over grass field. Gosh. And uh, he had all these stories he could tell. He flew for uh, whack at the aircraft designer, He uh, test flew a couple of his aeroplanes. He had a wing fall off one of those. But he had some wonderful stories to tell, and I believe some of them. uh, (laughs) Well done. But he had contacts in the aviation industry. And I think uh, the last person I saw that convinced me I should go and join the Air Force was a KLM pilot. And he put me on board Super Connie at at, uh, Mascot and uh just sat in there and i thought now this is for this me is this is what i uh, want to do uh, that's what i want to do i used yeah. to
1: love as a little kid seeing those super constellations fly over with the three tails at the end of it was that what you mean by a, yes yeah?
0: yes it's the ones yeah yeah. yeah
1: yeah would have been exciting to fly so was it um what year did you actually join
0: uh 65.
1: and yeah. the process of the process of being selected and the training what was that like initially uh
0: the I was, I was amazed that I actually got in because there were so many applicants and uh, they whittled them down, um, a lot of them on the health grounds, mm-hmm. in fact first time round I missed out because I had a rash under my arm, it was just after Christmas when I was doing these checkouts and somebody had given me some sort of underarm deodorant that didn't agree with me and I knew what was causing it and I'd stopped using it but I still had a bit and they knocked me back just on that, so they'd knock you back on almost anything. Anyway, the next time I went around, uh, they deemed me fit and I managed to get through all the rest of it. So uh, was that a
1: pilot's course that you got into? uh,
0: Yes, and there was a bit of a story to that too because you had to fill out an application form and on the top of it it had what are your preferences and it had preferences one, two and three and that was uh, uh, pilot, AEO or navigator. And I just ticked pilot and they said, no, no, you've got to fill out all three. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to do those other things. And they said, oh, we're not too sure about that, whether we can do that. I think it was probably a sergeant I yeah, was talking sure. to at the time. But anyway, they let me do it and, uh, and I got through on the pilot interview. So
1: well, that, that aren't you lucky that worked. you only ticked one, <laughs> one box? Now, your first experience in a plane, was that with the Wengeel?
0: Uh, I flew a couple of Cessna's out of Bankstown just uh, to, to get the feel for it before sure. I joined the Air Force. Uh, but yes, the Windjill was the first aeroplane we flew at uh, Point Cook.
1: Tell us about the Windjill for someone that doesn't know anything about it.
0: <laughs> well, I thought it was a marvellous aeroplane, and I flew it a lot more later on uh, when I was doing the forward air controller training. So I ended up with about 800 hours or something on the Windjill. But um, it had a few little nasties as. All early airplanes had, um, but I never got caught out, and I enjoyed flying it. I thought it was a terrific little airplane. Yeah.
1: I, I I know in in the introduction, I, I've read that you have said that the air force changed your life. How so? Uh,
0: well, it, it went from being a very protected environment, practically never having left. the the local neighborhood and 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 living with my mother my father died the year after i left school Um, but i hadn't been overseas i'd been interstate once uh so going into the air force with overseas travel and uh well not not to mention the uh uh, the initial training of course was uh, uh, quite a shock sure sure took me a while to settle down to that i had a lot of problems at Point Cook and I was lucky to get through I, flying was fine uh, but I, I had a bit of trouble coming to grips with uh, the way they treated us there But when when we went across to Pierce uh, the instructors there seemed to want you to pass rather than trying to fail you and that's when things started to change Do you um, think there was
1: a purpose though if that was what the process was at Point Cook that let's, let's weed out those that won't make it as opposed to those that will is that a possibility?
0: I don't know that the... Um, um, the flying instructors were, were all that way, but certainly some of the ground instructors were that way. Um, so, uh,
1: I'm just yeah. wondering also, with the background that you've just described, before you get into the air force, what kind of culture shock it would have been. Suddenly, there's a whole range of people that you've got to acclimatise yourself with. Was that a what kind of difficulty was that present for you?
0: Oh, I, th- I think. When, when they select us, they were pretty fussy, and uh, I think we are pretty much cloned before we even joined. <laughs> uh, so we're all, all, you know, well, all came from different sort of backgrounds, but we're all similar sort of people, really. Sure,
1: sure. Um, so yeah, so. I, I get the impression of how, therefore, how it would have changed your life. Um, was the first real combat plane the Sabre that you were on? Would you, would you say?
0: Uh, perhaps the Vampire, because we did our weapons training on the Vampire at Williamtown when I got posted to fighters. Uh, that's when we learned how to use uh, a gun sight and how to track other airplanes, how to how to um, do tactical formations and uh, do uh, bombing and gunnery and all the air to ground sort of work. So you talk about
1: the controlling the column. Was that on the Sabre or the Vampire or both? Sorry, controlling you controlling the column on the on the Sabre. Was it the column or? Using the different facilities of the of the Sabre, the the the, ga- the gun sight, etc.
0: Uh, no, anyway, on the on the Sabre, it was uh, a different generation aeroplane to the Mirage, which I flew for most of the time. But I did one uh, tour up in in Malaysia on on Sabres. And the Sabre was just a gentleman's aeroplane. It had this beautiful canopy that you could just turn around, you could check your six, you could see everywhere. And when you slid the canopy back and you were taxiing around, you could put your elbows up on the (laughs) On the, on the edges and you could, uh, uh, it had nose wheel steering, it was just such a comfortable aeroplane. You could even have the canopy open when you were flying. As really? Long as, it, as long as you weren't flying too quickly at the time. Gosh. Uh, so Sounds- No, it was a beautiful aeroplane, but it, it only had a, a ranging radar and it. it didn't have a, a detection radar in it, so it was quite different to the Mirage. Uh, but it was a beautiful aeroplane to, to fly and, and had very few vices.
1: Someone, who will remain nameless, uh, spoke to me once about the cockpit of the vampire saying how poorly designed it was. Uh, did you experience that
0: feeling? Yes, I certainly did. People used to say that the POMs are designed an aeroplane and uh, then they think, where the hell are we going to put the pilots and, <laughs> <That's laughs> and stuff in the last minute. I had a, uh, a, a big instructor very wide in the shoulders and i was reasonably large too and we were constantly
1: bumping into each bumping
0: other into each other all the time there wasn't much room in, in the cockpit
1: so, so. the saber was a relief
0: uh, the sabre was a beautiful airplane lots lots of space in it and yeah. but it was a day fighter not not a day night
1: so airplane. can you relay some of the experiences you had in the saber while you were flying overseas
0: well um As I said, we were a day fighter, and and I always got the impression that most of the older people in the squadron um, didn't really like flying at night. And I could sort of understand that because it really wasn't equipped for, for night flying. But it always used to amaze me how when the weather was crook or it was night time that we'd go flying and the Mirages would get grounded because they didn't want to put their expensive aeroplanes out in that sort of weather. So they had the maxaret braking and things they could use on a wet runway, and whereas we could very easily uh, blow tyres on landing. Uh, aquaplaning was common and uh, lots of problems, but you know, we, we certainly learned about flying from sabers.
1: So you actually flew, you did fly the sabre at night?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to do what night... What were the difficulties with that? Uh, in fact, it was easier than the Mirage in some ways at night. We used to do night formation and it actually had quite good lighting on it, whereas the Mirage had terrible bloody lighting for trying to format at night. Um, so it was OK for that, but you couldn't do much with the aeroplane.
1: So as a fighter aircraft, how would it compare against potential enemy fighter aircraft?
0: um well we uh, an example is uh, we had a detachment to yubon in thailand uh, which they call 79 squadron to try and fool the politics of the whole thing i think we were still 77 squadron going up to cross the border and we became 79 Squadron, right. different call on and uh when i arrived up there we were just starting or we were doing a lot of uh cooperative work with the, the yanks who were flying F-4s there, they were flying over North Vietnam. Yep, uh, I think that was around about the linebacker stage yes. of, of operations. And uh, the F-4 at that stage had, initially wasn't equipped with a gun. Uh, I think the Yanks thought they didn't need a gun anymore, they had these newfangled missiles and that's all it needed, but they very rapidly discovered that if anybody saw one of these old fashioned missiles coming, they could avoid it and they could uh, not get shot down and they'd quite often end up in gun battles and they had no idea how to fight uh, an aeroplane that performed like a MiG-17, and, uh, MiG-15, MiG-17. And we had that sort of performance from a very similar looking aeroplane. So we flew quite a lot against the F-4s and F-102s, 105s and, uh, and I can tell you that my gun camera film was extensive of all these Yanks and their big U-bit aeroplanes up there. And I don't think I got shot down once. There were a couple of missile kills on me, uh, which we didn't have a good way of avoiding. But, and so, so the Sabre was uh, an interesting aeroplane. Very rapidly went supersonic, but then didn't go any faster. Sure. Um, and a very manoeuvrable, So nice, MiG nice airplane. M-
1: M- versus Sabre, the MiG would have just had a, had an edge?
0: Uh, I don't know, it just depends. It all comes down to the pilot, the pilot. Though, if they're close yeah. enough. Yeah.
1: And the Royal Australian Air Force pilot is the best, true? Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: Mo- moving right well, along. Well, the, 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 the obvious is the obvious. Uh, the USAF's best pilots were better than our fighter pilots. And their worst were far worse. But I think our average was always a lot higher sure. than the USAF because of the numbers they had to train, I suppose. And I
1: mean, while you were in Ubon, what was the relationship like between USAF and Raf? Uh,
0: very close, very close. We taught them to play darts and they taught us uh, you know how to, how to drink hard liquor or try to, <laughs> but we got back to beer as soon as we could. Uh, oh. No, it was a very close relationship. They appreciated all the training we gave them. Uh, Sometimes it was embarrassing though, they'd come back from a trip over to the north and they might have somebody missing out of their formation, Uh, but they'd still go into the tanker, take on fuel and then they'd play games with us before they went back and landed, so uh, uh, they really wanted that training to help them out so they could fight the MiGs.
1: Your move from Sabre to Mirage, where and how did that occur?
0: Uh, well, that was after one tour in, in Butterworth, uh, in Malaysia. and came back and did a Mirage conversion uh, at uh, Williamtown uh, and right at the end of that Mirage conversion, I went straight back up to Butterworth again and that was my own fault. I forgot to change my posting preference, which said first preference was to go up to Malaysia and uh, I hadn't changed that and I really didn't want to go up there, so that was a bit of a disappointment, but anyway. Now, what, what was that like? Butterworth. Butterworth. Uh, first tour, I really enjoyed. I think second tour, it was starting to drag a bit. Um, I was missing, uh, uh, I guess it's a bit sexist, or sorry, uh, race, yeah, missing r- racism, but I'm missing the, the round-eyed women yeah, okay. and uh, social life. That, yeah, know, this was in your second Australia. tour. Yeah, in my yeah. second tour. And,
1: yeah. and you did say also, I, I believe, that you made some observations about the POMs. In, in Malaysia? You explore that with me?
0: Uh, no, I don't remember saying anything about oh, okay. okay. Well, and, had, no, what no, was the relationship <laughs> like
1: between the RAF and the, the RAF? Uh,
0: well, most of the relationship we had with them was down in Singapore. Uh, they had all their bases down in Singapore, and we'd deploy down there. Uh, in Sabres, we used to fly against uh, Hunters and things, and later on uh, in Mirages, we were up against the Lightnings, um, But um, always had a good relationship with them. Obviously, it'd be a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, talk going on in the bar, and you know how how they used to go back to their rooms and put talcum powder up in the fan, and that was their shower for the day. (laughs) Okay. All right. enough enough
1: exploration of that kind of of, relationship. Um, With the fiftieth anniversary of the uh, Royal Australian Air Force, I believe you got involved with the Deltas. Can you tell us about about that?
0: Uh, Yes, there's there's actually a a book out in the Deltas. If anybody would like to read it, they should be able to find it fairly easily. Do you
1: know what it's called? uh,
0: You happen to have a copy with you? (laughs) No, I don't have a copy with me, but it is called uh, The Delta was written by Dave Robson.
1: Dave Robson, Uh, yeah, okay, all right.
0: Who was one of the members of the team. But yes, they decided uh, that our squadron uh, would uh, form an aerobatic team and be part of the uh, 50th centenary celebrations, or... 50th anniversary celebrations, I should say. And we uh, put on these shows all around Australia after lots and lots and lots of practice. Um, It was a very... a very professional team, and, and we got all dressed up in what we call their poofter suits, uh, we even had white cravats and uh, <laughs> special, did you all grow moustaches? Did you patches <laughs> and things? I think I had a moustache at that stage. I certainly had one in Vietnam. So. Oh,
1: I thought one of the ingredients that you had to have as a pilot was well, you had to have a moustache.
0: A fighter pilot. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, <would> <laughs> a fighter
1: pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Look, there's something I do want to ask you about, um, and it's where you almost didn't survive, Keda. You're in a plane, and you had a someone called Fergie with you. Now tell us what
0: happened and how you almost died. All right, this this is my first tour, uh, uh, as I said, in Malaysia on Sabres, and uh, the weather that day was uh, not thunderstorms. So it was just uh, what we call clagged from about seven or eight hundred feet up to. 15 20,000 feet something like that above that we could go up and we could practice our visual intercepts and whatever we wanted to do so it's
1: daytime
0: uh, it's daytime yep. and underground control interceptor controllers who operated on the top of Penang Island yep. um and they were a lot of those controllers up there were local controllers on this day I think we had uh, local Malaysian controllers uh, they would control us back to, to get back on the ground. Uh, we had other ways of getting on the ground, NDB approaches, but that just took too long. Mm-hmm. What happened on this day is I asked for radar vectors to go back to um, to join for a visual approach below the cloud for special VFR because the conditions were, weren't quite visual, but uh, they weren't too bad. And I was expecting that the, they would send me to uh, what we call the right initial point which is about five miles north of the base and then we just turn and and run down over the runway and and go into the circuit that way but uh, that's not the way it worked out we broke clear of the of the cloud just below a thousand feet and the visibility was pretty crook under under that too i could see the coastline coming up and i could see a hill off to my left up to the north that looked to me like because I was expecting to see it, Kedah Peak disappearing up into the cloud. But as it turned out, as I crossed the coast, I thought, this is all wrong, it doesn't doesn't look right. That's just the northern tip of Penang Island. There's a bit of a, bit
1: a peak there that yeah. went,
0: the peak there went up in the hills. So as soon as I realised what was doing it, I called a brake turn and uh, and we just maximum G turned around and got out of there. And we must have gone very close to going into into Penang Island into into the, the top of Penang Island. Anyway, we uh, we survived that one and uh, managed to get back visually and land. And so we were, it was partially my fault, I guess, because I should have known what was going on.
1: Yeah, but for a non-pilot listening to what you're saying,
0: yeah. how
1: what are the chains involved? That you're the pilot and you're obviously communicating with someone on the ground in terms of. Radar or direction of whatever. How does that
0: kind of mistake occur? Well uh, There's always a chain of events Uh, Probably the first chain is uh, in the chain was I didn't ask for vectors to write initial I just asked for vectors to a for a visual approach.
1: Okay, uh, I visual think. being you, so, you so,
0: see. So from where we were out out to the uh, where are we were out to the west of, of Butterworth, they just directed me or or both of us straight towards the airfield instead of to an initial initial point. So <clears throat> if we hadn't a broken visual, we would have gone straight into the top of Penang Island. But I'm sure they would have said something before <laughs> if we hadn't got visual in time. But having broken out of the weather and calling visual. They probably lost interest then, they weren't, weren't looking to see whether I was going to position sure, up to sure. the north or not. So lots, lots of causal factors in that, you couldn't really blame any one thing.
1: And again from a person who's not an expert in any way, shape or form, the difference between having radar on the ground assisting you and having radar on the plane assisting you, what's the, in the importance of either or?
0: Well, if, if I'd been to Mirage, I'd obviously be able to identify Penang Island quite easily and Peak and so yeah, that, that sort of thing wouldn't happen.
1: So there's no radar at all in the Sabre, correct?
0: Uh, just, just a, a gun-ranging radar just looked straight ahead, and it just told you how far away you were from the aeroplane out in front uh, for missile shots and, and gave ranging information sure. to the guns. Um, Look,
1: well, Chris, I, I'm, I'm glad you survived. Let me just add that. Can, can I take you to Vietnam, uh, May of 1971? Firstly, how did you get involved in Vietnam? What were
0: the steps? Um, sort of voluntary because uh, Ford Controllers course was something that you had to ask for and I thought, I'd been on done quite a few tours at the stage, and I thought that'd be something different to do. And I thought oh, that sounds interesting to me. I wouldn't mind doing a forward air controller's course. So, I did the course at Williamtown, and uh, then I got posted to Vietnam. Um, well, I, not not quite uh, that quickly. Uh, what happened was um, I never really joined the air force or the military. To go and save australia or to fight for my country i went i joined the air force to fly airplanes because that was my passion but once i'd been trained as a fighter pilot and then trained as a forward air controller and then something like vietnam came up it's just something you, you just have to be part of all sure, know, that's the way i felt anyway sure so i put my name down for that got posted up there and and away i went
1: the forward air controller and i've only learned this by being involved in these series of interviews, had such an important and risky role in Vietnam, success or failure on the ground really de- did depend on one person sitting in an aircraft that he he or she couldn't defend themselves against up in the sky. Can you just relate th- just how important it was to be an FAC, a forward air controller, excuse the initials? Uh,
0: yes. well. Where I was, uh, I got posted up to I-Core, which is uh, right up the north near the DMZ, as the Yanks mm-hmm. called it. Um, at the time I was there, we were the last forward air controllers to go to Vietnam, and really the Americans uh, were in the, in the business of pulling back rather than getting fully engaged. So traditional roles of reconnaissance uh, and feeding that back and that leading to targets, Really, they didn't want to know about new targets and things, so we were just given targets. Now, if we behaved ourselves and did exactly what they said as never fly below 1,500 feet, there was very little risk factor involved for us because small arms fire wasn't about to get you. And when I was there, there was never any um, reasonable sort of 27mm or whatever it was, yep. uh, trip AAA, uh, and certainly no missiles. So if we were careful, we, we, we were pretty right. Um, we did have a few um, aircraft that went missing. Forward air controllers uh, went missing. A couple of Americans up there. I suspect they probably flew low, trying to you know, sort out the target for themselves, rather than letting the army do it. So I'm not sure. But it wasn't it wasn't so much dangerous as as just high workload, uh, trying to coordinate. Artillery uh, uh, with the the grunts on the ground. So you're speaking to the guys on the ground. You're speaking to the artillery um, unit. You're speaking to home base. You're speaking to fighters that you've called in, uh, and all these different radios. Five different radios, all going all the time. You just had to be right on your toes and. You certainly never had time to get nervous, (laughs) too busy working.
1: The complexity of that communication, that multi-level communication, that must have been a rather challenging thing for a pilot to be involved in. I mean, five sources of information,
0: plus fly. Well, all the radios sounded slightly different anyway, and you learnt to turn some volumes high and some volumes lower so that you knew which one was coming in but quite often you could tell just from the voices anyway, who, who you were speaking to. Um, but, you know, things would go wrong occasionally. I remember once they wanted me to go and uh, uh, very quickly go from where I was to an, an, a, a grid point that they gave me. Uh, there was a troops in contact there, supposedly, and I asked for artillery, and they said, no, there's no artillery in the area that you're going to, you're right. And just after I arrived there and I'm trying to talk to the grunts on the ground, the artillery started landing right underneath my aeroplane. And uh, then I found the artillery didn't know I was there and I didn't know that they were firing. So, you know, th- those sort of mistakes could happen. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of the time it was, it was just hard work and uh, very enjoyable, very satisfying sort of work when you could help the, the guys on the ground.
1: Tell us about the, the plane. Your, was it the Bronco?
0: The Bronco. Yeah, well, the Bronco was made for the job, whereas uh, the other aeroplanes before that had just been adapted from civilian aeroplanes. But the AV-10 was, was pretty much perfect for the role.
1: Why? What was, what was special about the Bronco?
0: Well, it had good performance, good short-field performance, short-field uh, landing and take-off, uh, a, a quite reasonable performance in cruise. You could get somewhere in a hurry. Um, very maneuverable airplane. You could put a lot of G on it. Uh, very aerobatic sort of airplane. Uh, I think uh, in in some of the. The, the publication you were given, I mentioned that uh, sometimes to keep the uh, army air cav teams amused, I used to put on aerobatic displays for them. To oh, <laughs> in the middle of combat! Oh, that's <laughs> <In> great. The <laughs> <combat>. <laughs> yeah. so. When they're doing sniffer missions or something, they'd go out and look at. Uh, they had all this special gear on board, and they'd be looking for hot spots on the ground. And um, that only kept about one person involved, and everybody else was getting a bit bored. Saying, so. "Yeah, I,
1: I still think that the FAC pilot had." a most significant role in the battles that were taking place on the ground and the rescues that were taking place on the ground?
0: Well, the important thing was that uh, fighter pilots in jungle areas like that couldn't see the target. Uh, Very, very seldom could they see a target, so you'd have to talk them in. Um, We got to the stage where we could navigate to within about 50 to 100 metres of of just grid point references on the map uh, using Quite you know, good good sort of maps that we were mm. provided with there. Of um, course, these days you wouldn't have to navigate at all; you just use GPS or sure, something. So sure. totally different. But um, then we would have to make sure that the fighter pilots knew their attack direction for safe escape, and that we wouldn't fly them into mountains on the recovery and all that sort of thing. So a lot of things to consider, and all the Australian forward air controllers were fighter pilots, ex fighter pilots. So we had the expertise to control these aeroplanes and, uh, and that made it quite easy, whereas some of the Yanks, I know one of the Americans that, uh, that I had accommodation right beside, he was having a hell of a trouble doing this job because he came straight off B-52s to do his forward air control course didn't understand the problems of the fighters
1: hence the reason yeah. for the fighter pilot being the, the FAC that's why it's um, is wondering. there any ju- would there have ever been any justification given that it can hover that a that a helicopter would have been a, an adaptable FAC person
0: uh, in no. the
1: sense that it can hover over the the area
0: It just depends what environment you're in. Um, Forward air controlling started off with just somebody on the ground and a radio uh, that understood, who'd been taught to understood aeroplanes' difficulties, and it slowly evolved over the years. So there are lots of ways you can skin a cat, but the the best way was with an AV-10 at that time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You were in Vietnam. You were in the services. The Vietnam War comes to an end, and then Australian troops, service personnel have to come back Australia yep. what was that like
0: um, the, the most frightening thing was getting airborne out of uh, Saigon <laughs> I, d- I don't know if you know but as uh, Qantas used to fly us up and fly us back they did the special charter work I think they called themselves Skippy Airlines and uh, I came to meet the the guy who actually flew the Qantas 707 that took me out of Saigon and back to to Darwin that was our first point of entry back in Australia they didn't worry about weight and balance, I'm sure, on the aircraft, and everybody had all these things they wanted to take back home, and the aeroplane was so heavy that we lifted off with about two or 300 feet of runway in front of us at the, at the end of the runway. And uh, it, it took me a while to get over that, but it was, it was certainly good to get back home again. But then it wasn't good to see what the civilian reaction was at yeah, the Yeah, this
1: is the part that... that Frustrates me that wh-
0: well. It wasn't just the government, and uh, and uh, they certainly didn't help anything. But uh, the the media um, picked up on that, and it was an unpopular war. And uh, basically, I never admitted to the fact I'd been to Vietnam if I was out in socially, uh, unless somebody particularly wanted to know about it, because uh, normally it just got me into more trouble than anything. It was better not to talk about it. What.
1: I know we can't say what if it hadn't been like that, but what was the impact? What do you feel the impact would have been or was on service personnel who did come back and in some cases were spat upon and not even allowed to join the RSL?
0: Well, it was probably another excuse to have another drink, I suppose. (laughs) It it wasn't a nice feeling at all. Um, I could go back to the beginning and say the one thing that interested me was when I went to Vietnam, nobody ever said to me, uh, this is why you're going to Vietnam and this is why your country wants you to go there and this is what we're trying to achieve. Uh, that, di- that wasn't part of it. It was all just the professional training as to how to do your job. And then when I got back, the country didn't want us to be there anyway, it seemed. So Yeah, yeah it, it yeah. Wasn't, wasn't a nice feeling.
1: A sad period of Australian history. Uh, back in Australia, you uh, do the Fighter Combat Instructors course. What was that like?
0: Uh, i was very lucky to get on that in fact because uh, i'd just been posted to a a ground job in uh, in canberra and i I was sent to a place called uh, my position was dom2b2a or something and nobody knew what it was they had to look this up and find out where i was going it turned out i went to the directorate of organizations and methods as a forms officer and i got to draw forms and uh, (laughs) that he write up printing specifications for renewal forms and so you can imagine you know fighter pilot doing that sort of work and i'd been doing that for about seven months and i heard about this fighter combat instructor course and uh, when i tried to apply they said well you need to be in current flying practice otherwise you can't do it but i was extremely lucky that my last CO was now working in uh, the head shed down there he was a wing commander and I just rang him up and had a chat with him. I said, this is what's going on. And he said, I'll write you a letter. And he wrote a letter to DPO, uh, Director of Postings Officers. Yes. And and he, it, it, it was a bit embarrassing. There was this glowing report on why I shouldn't miss out on an FCI course. <laughs> but anyway, it, uh, thanks to him, I managed to get back to, to Williamtown and, and do the course. Um, it was... Uh, one of the things, they were a bit upset about having to do it. I don't know who who pulled a few levers but said, yeah, get him back there to do the course. But they said, that means we need to consider everybody uh, who's in non-flying practice. And I said, yeah, well, that's fine. Anyway, I got selected for the course. And and, so, and that was another big turning point in my career. And well,
1: before we get on to the turning point, non-flying practice. Again, someone like me who's listening to what you're saying, what what does that mean?
0: It just means you're not currently flying aeroplanes. So I hadn't flown an aeroplane for eight months or something when I went back to Williamtown.
1: So before you actually can then do the course, does that mean you've got to get back onto an aeroplane and do some sort of refresher course? Yes,
0: just a refresher course, just a few trips, and it didn't take much. Seven or eight months didn't didn't matter much really.
1: Okay, and was that in the Mirage?
0: Yes, it was in the Mirage.
1: And is that... As the pilot, is that a, 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 where you had some sort of incident where you were disconnected with what was happening in the, in the plane or flying back or f- taking off? Or
0: <laughs> I'm not too sure what incident you're referring to. I almost got into strife because I was so happy to be airborne again. My <laughs> wife was staying in the, uh, in the, uh, in the flats up at um, uh, Nelson Bay or just outside of Nelson Bay. And I thought, oh, I'll just go do a low pass just to let her know that, oh, I'm, air- oh, that I'm airborne gee. again. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I scared the hell out of a little old lady up there, and she complained. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so Maybe that almost, that's what you know, I'm referring to. That almost finished my FCI course before I got started. But anyway, the FCI course would have to be one of the, the toughest courses I've ever been through. and I've never worked so hard in my life. I worked absolutely flat out. I remember being really, really upset about two thirds of the way through the course when the CO called me in and he said, "Uh, Miro, you've really got to do more study. He said, you're not doing well enough in ground school. And I said, sir, I I don't know where this is coming from, but I said, maybe I'm not the brightest chip off the book or whatever, but I said, I'm working as hard as I can possibly work. and I almost threw in the towel Then I almost thought, what the hell am I doing? I'm working this bloody hard and it's not appreciated. You're getting ready to... No, no, <laughs> yeah, keep <laughs> yeah. going. Um, anyway, uh, as it turned out, uh, at the end, I topped the course. I, I came top overall. Well, so much for top, what the top, comment... Top of flying <laughs> top of... Yeah, uh,
1: You're not studying yeah. hard enough. This is, that comment flies <laughs> yeah. out the window.
0: So it worked in the end. Yeah. So
1: you've passed the course. Now, what do you do? What's, what's your job?
0: Uh, training Mirage pilots. So that was one part which you did at the operational converted conversion unit at Williamtown but uh, the the major role and I got posted back up to uh, Malaysia again this time married which was terrific uh, is to um, look after the air combat tactics or all the tactics for the squadron Uh, so the squadrons run through air defense and ground attack phases of operations and and at the beginning of every phase like air to ground dive bombing gunnery whatever for the fighter combat instructor gives a briefing to all the pilots on yep. how, how you're going to conduct the things and what what all the profiles are going to be and uh, advisors on tactics and all that sort of thing. So as the
1: instructor, you would have had to have done those things yourself so that they can rely on what you're saying to them is something this person has well, that's done? that's
0: right. You had to have done several courses, operational on, on, on fighters before you even qualified to go on the FCI course. And they were just selected people, uh, like half a dozen got selected to, to go on this course once every two years. Yep. Uh, yes. And so you become a real specialist in the role. And uh, the way the squadrons work, the CO. Uh, does all the paperwork makes the diplomatic decisions and the XO, as they were called in those days, uh, his 2IC, uh, he was flat out running the, the, the squadron. But when it came to the tactical side, the FCI um, briefed all the pilots and okay. was and responsible for that.
1: Whereabouts, or is this part of the, the process where you are looking at tactics against uh, hunters and lightnings? Is this the same...
0: Sorry, Sorry you, you,
1: were you involved in in the tactics uh, hunters versus lightnings? I, I just seem to recollect you having said something about that in your intro.
0: No, we uh, we had all sorts of exercises where we could uh, um, we fought against Singaporeans or against the uh, RAF and and obviously lots of different aircraft types and all we we could do. Um, comparative analysis of aeroplanes and and decide what the best tactics were to to use against those aeroplanes and I'd brief the squadron on that. Um, Yeah, so anything tactical in the squadron was the responsibility of the FCI really. Okay,
1: what about your promotion to squadron leader in 1978? Was this as a a step up from what you were doing?
0: It's a step up but it's also uh, limiting the number of postings you can get as a fighter pilot. Um, But I went back to Williamtown and and, uh, I got a prime posting there. I was a sea flight commander which is uh, in charge of refresher courses and running fighter combat instructor courses. So I ran a fighter combat instructors course there before I got posted to a ground job. Excuse me. That's all right. Um, When I went to a ground job, the first thing I did deliberately is I thought there's there's not many slots out there for wing commanders, uh, so I better stay as a squadron leader. And I deliberately didn't pass the last uh, tutorial that I had to do to <laughs> to get me that qualification, so that I could stay as one. But as it turned out, they uh, posted me down to Melbourne from um, where I was and, and promoted me to wing commander anyway. And. Uh, and so there, I was stuck. The only, only jobs available from then on, a um, CO of a squadron or something like that. So
1: in other words, desk jobs? Yes, yeah. yes,
0: mainly desk jobs. Not not many flying posts are available once you get to that rank.
1: So squadron leader and wing commander, uh, wouldn't a person within the Air Force want to see that progress for him or herself? Well, or was the squadron leader's job so good, that's where I want to stay?
0: Uh, I I know the the policy was probably uh, that everybody is being trained and groomed to become Chief of Air Force, but not everybody wants that to happen. Uh, An awful lot of us just wanted to stay on and flying. The RAF had a system where you could become a specialist pilot and they could could have a squadron leader sitting as co-pilot in an aeroplane and still flying, Uh, but we didn't have that sort of a system. So uh, uh, not everybody wanted to make it to the top. Now, my, my second-last job in the Air Force, uh, I was a personal staff officer to the Air Officer Commanding Support Command. He was a two-star officer. And I saw the way he got treated by the Chief of Air Force at the time, and I thought, wow, you'd think he'd get better treatment than that at this stage of his life. But his span of control was enormous. He had a whole bunch of one-star officers underneath him and then a whole bunch of group captains under that. He had all these huge international buyers of equipment and things for the military as well as looking after all the training airfields in Australia. And for that, I just didn't think he was getting paid enough and I didn't think he was respected enough for for what he achieved. Uh, So that didn't really make me want to continue on and become Chief of Air Force. There, There were other reasons, but round about then I started looking around and found a job in civil aviation and started a a whole new career. Yeah,
1: well, we won't go into that post-RFF career just yet, but if you had to look back and pick out one or two things that you really are in debt to the Royal Australian Air Force for, what might they be? It doesn't have to be a big list, but what stands out for you?
0: Well, because the first job I went to after I left the Air Force was too instructional for general aviation. I suddenly appreciated how well we'd been taught in the RAAF. Our instruction was just second to none. It was it was terrific. And I managed to get hold of a lot of our publications too, which which helped me from then on. Um, so the basic training they gave us was outstanding. I think probably some of the early fighter training wasn't as good as it could have been because we were still just Hung over from previous wars and different generational fighter and we were struggling with how to use the Mirage and what to do with it. Um, But after a while that became very professional and uh, uh, the the training really set me up to have a professional career once I left the Air Force. And
1: is aviation occupied post-Air Force career?
0: Uh, It kept me going until I was 65 and I retired then, thinking I was getting too old for the sort of flying I was doing.
1: I know that, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, one of the jobs you had from January 1981 was a desk job, and they didn't spell your name correctly?
0: Oh, no. On, on the day that I retired, so 20 years and two days, um, if you didn't do more than 20 years, you d- you didn't get your pension. All you got was your money back, so you had to do more than 20 20- 20 years to get your, your pension and so I did that 20 years and two days and then on the day that they were handing me these papers and saying sign here and sign there and here's your retirement ID card and my retirement ID card misspelt my surname.
1: Did uh, my, they ever fix it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no they, no? Didn't. they didn't even offer. <laughs> <No. Okay. laughs> anyway, well.
1: well Chris it, it's it's been a pleasure. Uh, Wing Commander retired Chris I want to thank you on behalf of all Australians for the service that you've provided Australia and the wonderful history, exemplary history of the Royal Australian Air Force. It's been an absolute pleasure. Have a nice day.
0: Thanks very much. Appreciate your comments.
1: Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavor and sacrifice, which is won in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of per Abua and astra
0: this is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families produced by air force association new south wales which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of air force veterans and their families If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.